Hi, Andy. Hi, Victoria. So I have noticed that when you open your lectures to questions from the audience, as you are often wont to do, one of the questions that almost always comes up these days is psychedelics. Absolutely true. And that's true no matter what subject I've been lecturing about, whether it's nutrition, <laughs> healthy aging, uh, integrative medicine, people are curious about psychedelics. And they're also curious how they can access them uh, legally. Mm -hmm. So our next guest actually has been building a company to do just that, to make available in Canada where he began and now in the United States, uh, legal access to psychedelic medicines. And Ronan Levy is one of the major players in this new space of uh, psychedelic therapy and developing clinics uh, where this can be done. Well, let's get him on. Okay. Ronan Levy is the co-founder of Field Trip Psychedelics, which is a new kind of mental wellness company. It blends legal psychedelic enhanced therapy, mindfulness, and self-care with psychotherapy sessions. He is a partner at Grass-Fed Ventures, a venture capital and advisory firm focused on the cannabis and biotech industries, and a member of the board of directors for Trait Biosciences, Inc., a leading biotech company in the hemp and cannabis industries. Ronan started his career as a lawyer practicing corporate and securities law and holds a JD from the University of Toronto. Welcome, Ronan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, we're delighted to have you. And I'm going to start by asking Andy to define psychedelic-assisted therapy for our listeners. Well, this is a form of psychotherapy, particularly intended for patients with anxiety disorders and depression, uh, especially forms of depression that have been resistant to conventional methods. And it involves uh, guided trips with psychedelics. I think the ones that have been particularly looked at have been psilocybin, mushrooms, uh, LSD, MDMA, which is in a slightly different category. There's tremendous interest in using this as a more effective kind of intervention than conventional medications. And everyone is waiting to see if or how soon these substances will be made available to practitioners for this use. Thanks, Andy. Uh, Ronan, anything you want to add? The definition of, of psychedelic, as Andy pointed towards, is, is one that's kind of loose and ever-evolving. You know, there's the classic psychedelics, which are psilocybin and LSD, which typically target the 5-HD2A serotonin receptor. Ketamine is being used as a psychedelic. That's what we're using in our clinics, even though it's not classically so. MDMA is not classically a psychedelic, but gets lumped into it. And our perspective is that anything that quiets the ego, that slows the ego, that slows the default mode network and opens people up to the effects of the psychotherapy uh, that typically follow psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy is a psychedelic. Because if you think about the origins of the word um, psychedelic, meaning mind manifesting or, or bringing to light, you know, there's a lot of ways to get there. Psychedelics just happen to be psychedelic drugs, I will say, for purposes of clarity, just happen to be a particularly efficient way to, to step into 
an altered state of consciousness that helps people tap into, you know, if you're doing it in a therapeutic context, maybe some of the traumas or experiences of our past that, that stay with us and affect us in a negative way. Or if you're doing it just for explorations to, to tap into a, a different level of awareness about the world, the universe, everything that's going on. However, can I add that uh, if you look at it from a chemical point of view, there are two main families of true psychedelics, the indoles uh, and the, the substituted phenethylamine categories. That's a different kind of substance. Uh, cannabis does not fall into those categories. And in addition to the natural and synthetic true psychedelics, a lot of people now are, are experimenting with analogs of psychedelics and trying to come up with variations of these molecules that may be legal and that may have beneficial effects. Uh, so that's another trend I think we'll see. I would say that at the moment, ketamine is kind of a placeholder. And would you agree with that, Ronan? I mean, there are a lot of the clinics that are opening are using that because that's what is now available to clinicians. That's absolutely right. And, and we're seeing great results with ketamine used as a psychedelic, yeah. notwithstanding your commentary, that's not conventionally one. Uh, but people have similar type experiences in terms of having an altered state of consciousness and are able to um, see things from a different perspective. But no, absolutely. Field trip was born with a view to using anything that becomes legal or approved. Ketamine was a great place to start because we could help people now. We could start to build their business and, and all that kind of stuff. But it really is not a stepping stone because I think it will continue to be used in our practice, mm -hmm. even when we have access to the full suite of psychedelics, assuming we have access to the full suite of psychedelics, but it will probably be of much lesser significance. So maybe we'll talk a little bit now about the status of psychedelics in the United States. There is this movement to uh, do two things. One is decriminalize and another is uh, legalize. So in Denver in May of 2019, it was the first city in the United States that decriminalized psilocybin. And that's also happened now in Oakland and in Santa Cruz, California, and as well as Washington, D.C. And that's obviously a, a step in a certain direction. But then you have the state of Oregon, which actually uh, has moved forward to legalize psychedelics with the Oregon Psilocybin Service Act, which is going to create a board to make recommendations about the safety and efficacy of psilocybin for treating mental health conditions. Yep. And Ronan, you're based in Canada. What do you see happening there? My impression is that Canada is ahead of the U.S. in this movement. You know, I, I like to say that what typically happens is states like California and Colorado and maybe Oregon tend to be first movers in socially progressive causes like legalizing cannabis, legalizing psychedelics, uh, same-sex marriage, all that kind of stuff. And then Canada comes along and does it on a coherent federal level. So everyone in Canada gets it. And then the U.S. slowly <laughs> starts to catch up on a state-by-state -state basis. You know, the, the, the laws and, and regulations in Canada are pretty much the same as in the U.S. right now. And I'd actually clarify, there's kind of three categories. There's decriminalization, there's legalization, and then there's regulatory approval. Because legalization and regulatory approval aren't exactly the same thing, depending on the context, but the latter being if the FDA approves the use of psilocybin for the treatment of major depression or treatment-resistant depression, that's not necessarily legalization and still very much be a controlled substance and, and subject to all sorts of restrictions, whereas legalization looks a lot more like cannabis. At least that's how I distinguish them in my head. What we're seeing in Canada 
is, I think, a fairly progressive attitude uh, from the government. The Minister of Health has now granted, I think, about 20 Section 56 exemptions, which is a, a unique feature in Canadian constitutional law in the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, which basically enables the Minister of Health to ignore existing laws in the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act and give permission to people to access uh, certain drugs. And so it's been used in the context of clinical trials. It's been used in the context of re uh, religious purposes. So there's a few churches that have been granted permission to use ayahuasca as part of their religious ceremonies. But most recently, it's been granted to people with end-of-life distress uh, who want to access psilocybin-assisted therapy. And on the back of that, there's actually been a move to reschedule psilocybin and MDMA, not for purposes of legalization, but to make them uh, available through something called the Special Access Program, which conceptually is very similar to the right to try in the US. You, you have to apply to a specialized board who would give you permission to access this. So it becomes a more administrative, administrative process than a Section 56, which is more political and uh, decided by the, the Minister of Health herself. Other than that, I think state by state and jurisdiction by jurisdiction, also kind of a result of how the federal governments and the state governments work. I think the U.S. is actually more advanced mm -hmm. because you have Oregon legalizing, you have all of these cities decriminalizing uh, access to psychedelics. But I think broad-based, we also have, and people don't talk about this, and I don't know why, maybe we Canadians are just a little too modest, but you know, the, the government gave a mandate to the Crown prosecutors, so the equivalent of district attorneys uh, in the U.S., to not prosecute small small possession uh, of drugs or psychedelics. And, and now the government has actually introduced legislation to mandate that, that the, the penalties associated with possession of small amounts of drugs would not be criminal. Um, so very similar to what's happening on a city-by-city basis. But again, across Canada, that would be a federal consideration. So it would apply all across Canada. Well, as you know, there are a, a couple of institutions that now have educational programs to train psychedelic guides. I think we need a lot more of them, though, and make sure that they're well-trained. I think the first prerequisite is that the therapist has to be personally experienced with the psychedelic states. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting debate and conversation about what the qualifications are in the first place. I think that's probably some of the hardest work that the people in Oregon are have to, going to have to confront, whether you have to be a doctor, a PhD, you know, is a, is a psychotherapist, a licensed psychotherapist sufficient, or is there some other training program that is going to be implemented? Uh, for our part, what we're doing within Field Trip is a few things. One is because we are trying to build a large network of specialized locations for psychedelic assisted therapy. You know, most of the therapists we're hiring do come with some training, whether it's through the California Institute of Integral Studies, whether they've studied with MAPS uh, or USONA, which is another nonprofit in the US that provides training. And, and we're also enabling access to training within our, our clinics for the, the therapists that, that work here. On a broad scale basis, it is an important consideration, but how you produce enough qualified therapists, given the vulnerability that happens when someone is under the experience of a psychedelic to ensure safety and quality and consistency of, of, of the therapeutic experiences is one of the big challenges that uh, you know, we as a, an industry or as a sector. I mean, we hear about bad trips and uh, the potential risk about bad trips. And I think the goal and part of having a therapist there is uh, that if that is the direction someone's going, there's someone to kind of help put them back together. Ego dissolution may have 
profound, wonderful meanings in some Buddhist training and terrible meanings in some psychiatric definitional ways. So um, how much experience does that therapist need to have? And, you know, Andy, you talk a lot about set and setting. How critical is it to have uh, a setting that can manage the so-called bad trip? Well, I think it's all important. You know, I think the experiences are so dependent on on set and setting. You know, it's the drug, the dosage, the route of administration, but then the expectations of the person, uh, which are very much shaped by the expectations of the therapist and the physical social environment in which the substance is used. So I think a great deal of attention has to be paid to that. Uh, and as you know, Victoria, I'm very interested in using these substances in, in physical medicine as well as psychiatric medicine. And I think there's just tremendous potential to help people deal with chronic illness of all sorts by um, giving them the experience. And that really requires the uh, skillful guidance of somebody who knows you know, how to direct these effects in the right direction. Just going to add that, um, you know, Andy, I, I, you touched on, you believe that's important that every, every therapist have some firsthand experience with, with psychedelic experiences. Generally, I agree. I, I think it's wise, but I don't think it's an absolute pre prerequisite. Erwin Perlman, who's the, the gentleman I work with and have worked with for, for personal growth and, and therapy and meditation for many years, he doesn't have firsthand experience in terms of psychedelics, but he definitely has that je ne sais quoi, I don't even know how to describe it, but I would feel perfectly comfortable uh, having him stitch together my ego after a, a hard experience. Um, uh, but, you know, generally speaking, I think Erwin is a, of a class and, and capable of doing things that, you know, makes him unique and special. So generally speaking, I agree with you. It's just not an absolute requirement. Body of Wonder is produced by the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona. Internationally recognized for innovative health and wellness programs, evidence-based research, and clinical standards. The center offers listeners a wide range of free resources to live and maintain a healthy lifestyle, including online learning, meditations, and short videos. To find out more, go to azcim.org podcast. That's azcim.org podcast. So Ronan, in the clinics where you're operating, does the therapist say something to create a positive expectation? I mean, do they say we're going to now administer the ketamine and you can expect to feel uh, free of all struggle? You will find yourself reorganizing how you see the world in ways that are incredibly positive. Do they, do they suggest things like that? <laughs> it really is therapist by therapist. I mean, that's the hard thing. It's, I mean, every person undergoing treatments and every therapist is a unique person with unique experiences and, and unique perspectives. So we really try to empower the therapists working in field trips to uh, bring a lot of their own discretion to the experience. That being said, we also try to create a framework to offer consistency of experience. So everyone has roughly the, the same uh, experience within field trip by and large. We do spend a lot of time, even outside of the immediate therapeutic appointments, helping people get prepared. So we've built a tool called Portal, which contains an incredibly robust amount of information so people can read and, and watch videos and prepare through meditations. In fact, Erwin, uh, who I mentioned before, has prepared meditations to help people just get into the right mindset and be prepared. Uh, and then the therapist, obviously, there, there will be conversations and appointments with the therapist before 
you know, actually undergo the first ketamine experience. But what they say in those, those experiences, what they say in those first uh, meetings and, and sessions is specific to the therapist. So there's, there's no common answer I can give there. Do you want to tell us something about the app that you developed? Because that looked uh, terrific to me. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. So within Field Trip, there's a few things that we're, we're doing. One is we're opening up Field Trip health centers across North America and actually in Europe as well, really trying to create beautiful settings, as Andy pointed on to the set and setting is an important aspect of the therapeutic experience. So we are investing heavily in making sure that people have a positive set by doing the work in advance, as well as having a beautiful setting, a place that's very comfortable, bright, warm, feel safe. So they're in a good mindset when they undergo their experience. But we realized also that there were going to be many people uh, experimenting with psychedelics and other forms of consciousness expansion that weren't in our clinics, that don't necessarily have a diagnosis, a DSM diagnosis. And they would be doing it without a lot of guidance or structure or information. And so we realized there's a unique opportunity to take a lot of what we had built for our in-clinic experience and, and put it into a digital tool in a, in a simplified way. So if people are out exploring and experimenting on their own, they have a process and, and tools to make sure they have the best experience possible. And so within TRIP, we help people do some intention setting and, and preparation. Uh, we provide music that has been specifically tailored and constructed to take people through a, an emotional journey to try and match their intention. Uh, we've also now introduced meditations to help people go deeper, or if they're experiencing a hard trip to help you know come out of that hard trip if they don't have a therapist or guide with them, uh, as well as structured reflection questions. So you can begin the process of integration. You know, that's, that's where a lot of the magic, so to speak, happens within psychedelic therapies. You have these intense transformative psychedelic experiences but without doing the work afterwards to really take those understandings and, and the awareness that comes out of it and, and turn it into your life and make it part of your attitude, your mindset, your, your ego, a lot of those benefits can dissipate. So starting the work of reflection, trying to understand what happened, what it meant to you and, and, and how you can take those experiences forward is a key component of what we're doing within TRIP as well. And, and we've designed it to be very beautiful. You know, where there's a lot of pushback initially being who wants their phone during a psychedelic experience. And certainly we're the first to advocate that it's much better to have a qualified trained person with you uh, for a psychedelic experience. But in the absence of that, better to have some sort of tool that is responsive and effective so you can have as good experience as possible. Ronan, you were involved in the national legalization and regulation of cannabis in Canada. And I'm just curious what parallels you see, if any, between cannabis and psychedelics. You know, on first blush, certainly when I learned about what was happening with psychedelics and, and this nascent renaissance that's still very nascent right now, uh, a few years ago, the immediate parallels seemed obvious but they're more superficial. You know, these are both stigmatized medicines. These are both drugs or medicines, depending on however you want to define it, that were largely made illegal and stigmatized, probably based more on political agenda than scientific fact that have had a renaissance recently. And that similarly, 
require a new infrastructure. You know, we're not really equipped right now, or we weren't at least a few years ago, to help bring cannabis medicine to the fore because there weren't, you know, the clinics or the physicians or, or the medical professionals who are really capable of helping people use cannabis medicine as effectively as, prop, as possible. And certainly there wasn't the infrastructure to cultivate a high quality, safe, tested cannabis for the number of people who would be consuming it. Uh, and so similarly with psychedelics, we're doing the same thing. We're, we're trying to build the spaces where people can come to have the proper oversight and medical care in, in a psychedelic uh, setting. Uh, we're also doing the work from both a cultivation and drug development perspective to help create safe access to these molecules as well. So you need that infrastructure. But the biggest difference, um, I guess there's two big differences that I see. First is that I expect psychedelics to come, as you think about it from a business perspective, as a service. You're not going to most likely go out and be able to buy mushrooms or LSD and take it home and have an experience. What you'd be able to do is find a qualified professional to take you through a psychedelic experience. So it's going to be more service-oriented than product-oriented, as, as cannabis is. And the other big consideration is that, by and large, cannabis is not curative in, in many respects, it helps people manage symptoms. Certainly it can be curative, but the evidence seems to suggest that cannabis is mostly symptom helps with symptomology. You know, it helps with your pain it, it helps with your anxiety, but it doesn't necessarily help, help get at the underlying causes with psychedelics, particularly as it pertains to mental health conditions like depression and anxiety and PTSD. The evidence seems to suggest, and, and at least my understanding of the mechanism of action, is that it helps you address the underlying causes. So you're not just dealing with the symptoms of being depressed, but you're actually healing the traumas and doing the works that may have caused you, in part, to become depressed in the first place. And, and so I think the potential of psychedelics to have a positive impact on people's lives is actually quite greater because it feels like it it creates a stepping stone such that you don't necessarily need to access psychedelics to deal with your mental health conditions. You may choose to, but you, you can sort of start to step away. Andy, I'd be curious to know your thoughts on that, actually. I, well. I agree with that. I think that's very well put, that uh, cannabis is something that people tend to use regularly to control symptoms. And with psychedelic therapy, there's at least a, the possibility, which can be very good, of, of getting to the root of a problem and changing it. And that, of course, is part of our goal in integrative medicine is can we get to the root and can we therefore pull that root out, so to speak, so that someone can heal. And yet, uh, Ronan, you alluded to the stigma of psychedelics, and uh, there does seem to be, uh, maybe from years of social messaging, negative social messaging, uh, what do we do about the stigma? Tony, uh, one of our advisors recently said, uh, and I apologize because I'm plagiarizing your line, but it, it's so good. She said, I grew up thinking McDonald's was food and mushrooms were drugs. And I thought that was quite, quite accurate. You know, the stigma around psychedelics is something that, that doesn't cause me a lot of heartburn, to be quite honest. When we started in the cannabis industry, the stigma around cannabis, particularly in the medical community, was so severe. We launched at, at a medical conference and doctors, uh, at the conference when they were walking down the aisle, not only didn't engage with us at our booth, uh, which said medical marijuana starts here, 
they actually gave us a wide berth. They would intentionally walk far away from us because they wanted nothing to do with us. Uh, and within about two years, we had gone from a pariah to being one of the most popular booths at the conference because what had happened is in the intervening two years, we had focused on doing really good, high-quality medicine and showing really good results. And the medical community and, and the areas where we were operating saw their patients having positive experiences and getting better and the quality of their life improving. And that triggered their curiosity and they wanted to have more understanding. And, and so that's why I think there was you know, a slow but building shift towards attitudes towards cannabis. With psychedelics, we're operating from a much better platform. First of all, I think cannabis has changed a lot of the attitudes and, and those ones strongly held beliefs at least have softened, if not changed, towards stigmatized medicines. But more importantly, there's a, a, just a great body of evidence, a much more persuasive body of evidence around psychedelic therapies than there ever has been for cannabis, both from the work and you know at Harvard and, and all the academic institutions in the 50s and 60s. There were incredible amount of papers written about LSD back then. And then in this modern renaissance, we see it coming from institutions like Johns Hopkins and New York University and Imperial College. And it's being led by the scientists and, and the doctors and the physicians and the psychiatrists and the therapists who are really causing the current renaissance. Whereas with cannabis, the, the shift in attitudes was driven much more at a political grassroots level, less the medical community, less the scientific community, more the advocacy level. Here, it's really the medical community and the scientific community that's leading to this excitement. So the stigma, I think, is going to change quickly. I'm a big believer that stigmas don't survive in the face of evidence. And, and as more and more evidence uh, becomes established as psilocybin and MDMA and LSD and even new molecules like FT104 that we're developing go through the clinical trials and ultimately, hopefully, become approved medicines by the FDA and Health Canada, There'll be no debate as to the stigma around them because it will be validated that many of the once held beliefs around the dangers and addictiveness uh, of psychedelics will be largely debunked and, and you can just put point to objective data for it. And I would add that the cultural perceptions of psychedelics are changing very fast in a positive direction. There was just, uh, I think, you know, a Vogue magazine had a cover story touting the benefits of psychedelic therapy. That's mainstream. And, you know, I see this happening all over right now. Very, very quick change. It's, it's interesting too. It's like, I kind of got this sense, you know, uh, my, my mom is a boomer and my business partners, parents, they're all boomers uh, of the post-war generation. And, you know, they were always pretty strict and disciplined on drinking is bad. Drugs are bad. Drinking is bad, but it's okay within a degree. And as soon as cannabis became accessible from a medical perspective, my mom was one of the first people to put up her hands. Like, I want to try it. And now with psychedelics as well. So I think there's a, there's a, a very evolving attitude, especially a, in, in my parents' generation, um, which, which is nice to see. Well, I want to also talk about in the United States, uh, we have a lot of trauma related to COVID-19. Um, we're recording this during the pandemic and the physicians in training, the residents and also the hospitalists and the intensivists are experiencing the death of so many patients, uh, in some cases are experiencing the need to really uh, decide who gets what level of care. Uh, and I, I think that uh, the trauma um, that healthcare experience, healthcare providers, the nurses, the respiratory therapists are experiencing is 
a unique uh, experience to this generation. And one can imagine that maybe one of the ways in which this generation will heal will be widespread legal availability of psychedelic medicines to help with their PTSD. Uh, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm not a believer very much in silver bullets, but I do believe in silver linings. And <laughs> I do believe that there are many silver linings to come out of this global pandemic. That's in no way to d- diminish the, the trauma and tragedy of so many people being sick and dying, and having to live through this. But I think it's going to change attitudes. I think it's mm-hmm. going to force people to come to grips uh, with a lot of things, both in terms of what we just experienced, in terms of the social dynamics and, and healthcare system and, and politics and, and business and finance and, and all of these considerations. But as Irwin described it to me, the pandemic is the great pause. You know, at the, in the early days of the pandemic, we were all forced to sit at home and confront a lot of the fears that we have to face, whether it's fears around mortality, whether it's anxiety around you know, money and, and security uh, of your financial state, whether it's social isolation and friendships and what meaning, uh, what relationships have meaning to you, you couldn't avoid these experiences at the beginning of the pandemic. And it was a great opportunity because many people couldn't work during that time to go inward and reflect. And I think out of this, uh, we are destined to experience experience a great renaissance uh, in many respects. One of the areas I'm particularly excited about is that I think we're going to see integrative medicine come to the forefront, right? People are starting to really accept it. I mean, the science is, is there, but it's continuing to emerge. But I think from an attitudinal perspective, people start to see how much your outlook, your perspective, your emotional health affects your physical health and, and vice versa. And I actually foresee a future where even the whole medical system starts to shift where your healthcare, or your mental healthcare, your emotional healthcare practitioner becomes your primary triage point mm-hmm. because they're going to have such a much deeper understanding of who you are as a person. And if they have a background in, in medicine as well, they'll be able to more, I think, effectively triage you through the system. So you can start working on your mental, emotional health, which you know, we know has such a significant impact on your physical health and, and what gets expressed in your genetics and your epigenetics. And then everything kind of flows from there, how you eat, what exercise you do, what meditations and mental health practice. But it, to me, it starts up here and then it starts to flow down. I don't know that's the future, but I definitely see a possibility where that, that becomes our future. And I think it's really exciting and really wonderful. Well, Interestingly enough, uh, we have greater demand for our training programs during this time of the pandemic than ever before. Uh, And we train the whole array of healthcare providers, doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, physical therapists, and so on and so forth. So uh, I I agree the future may be uh, a much greater availability of integrative medicine. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. One of the things that excites me on this similar vein is most people accept that it's good to be proactive about your physical health. It's good to go to the gym. We, we accept that it helps us live longer and be healthier and be stronger and be happier. We don't all go to the gym and we don't have, all have great exercise routines, but we accept it to be true. We don't think that way about our mental and emotional health. We're very reactive. We do it when we're depressed. We do it when we're anxious. We do it when times are tough. But I think psychedelics are going to be the platform that even if it doesn't result in a total inversion of our healthcare system, 
it's at least going to result in a scenario where people start to think proactively about their mental health, that they're going to see it's something that's worth pursuing even when times are good. Uh, because by and large, even though most people have, not most people have, but it's certainly possible to have a hard trip or a bad trip on psychedelics. Most of the experiences are pretty positive. People enjoy them. They find them very meaningful. And so all of a sudden, talking about your emotions, talking about your traumas, going through these experiences is no longer going to be looked at something to be, you know, uh, afraid of or, or um, shy about, like we talk about right now. There's a big effort to make a mental health at the forefront. And, uh, you know, those efforts are laudable, but I think psychedelics are going to leapfrog in terms of impact because, you know, I, I always use the example of like a 27-year-old person in, in the Midwest of the U.S. who probably feels in many ways culturally shunted aside, right? In, in some ways, the world has passed them by. The, the great industrial revolution that led to the US, like all the manufacturing has gone aside. And, and when you walk around, you can, at least in my experience, you kind of palpably feel a kind of malaise and depression of what's my future. And if we can get that person, that person in the Midwest, that you know, 30-year-old Midwestern male to start talking about his emotions and his traumas and his childhood experiences, God, I, you know, if we can reach that audience, which seems like the farthest audience away from talking about this kind of stuff, God, I think this world would be a, a much better place, much more compassionate place, much more aware place, much more thoughtful place. And, and that's why I'm so excited about everything that's happening right now. Well, I just have to add that since psychedelics are not broadly available at this time for that person who feels stuck, unhappy, there is a really wonderful book called Spontaneous Happiness <laughs> that addresses uh, many of the ways in which someone can do all of the things from uh, their diet to their physical activity to playing with a pet to bringing flowers into their home that may lead to greater sense of happiness and meaning and purpose. And so psychedelics, I, I think, are going to be a wonderful addition to the repertoire and are going to be helpful to many people. There are lots of steps perhaps before that. A hundred percent. I just think it's one of those things that a lot of people will be able to get behind and be excited about, you know, and, and that's why I think it's going to be a great trigger for, in, in a positive way, for, for hopefully a, a great cultural awareness and, and awakening. Well, we wish you great success, Ronan. I, I look forward to seeing uh, your clinics becoming available to a lot of people in North America. I think that will be a very good change. Thank you for having me. It's, it's, it's really nice to see both of you again, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this, and I look forward to many more conversations in the future. Listeners, this is Dr. Victoria Mazes. We would love for you to send us your questions for Andy, myself, or for our guests. You can call us and leave a voicemail by dialing 520-621-3950. Again, 520-621-3950. Or you can submit a question by going to our website, azcim.org slash podcast. Again, azcim.org slash podcast. We will review your questions and try to answer as many as possible on our programs. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Body of Wonder brought to you 
by the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. If you like the show, please rate us five stars, follow the show, and leave a review. To learn more about integrative healing and the center, go to azcim.org slash podcast. That's azcim.org slash podcast.